Yeah, can you hear me okay? Yeah, it's like perfect. Okay, cool. Yeah, this is something I've been trying to address is, so I got a mic now, but my guest usually doesn't have a mic. So it's like, I'm working on how to, how to sort of optimize the audio quality on both ends. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad I can contribute in some way. Yeah, I got this because it like my laptop mic wasn't working super well. So, and I'm teaching every week, like three Zoom teaching sessions a week. So it's like, I, I'll invest in this. I'll get my money's worth. Oh, wow. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Dude, yeah, what's bro. it like to teach on Zoom? Well, I guess the first question is, did you, were you teaching in person at any point or did? Yeah, I taught one, but well, I was actually two, two or well, 1.5 semesters in person. One was I finished the whole semester last fall, 2019, and then spring hit and I was actually a grader for two classes, but what, like one of them, they needed me to lecture. I actually lectured in a, <laughs> in a university class, which was pretty lit, but like, uh, then the pandemic hit and so then it just became grading and then zoom zoom uh virtual learning or whatever they call it wait so you was that which semester was that that you were actually lecturing a class of of your your program uh spring 2020 so this past uh it would have been yeah past february i gave two lectures about electricity and magnetism to students in this class called biomedical uh, biomedical physics or something yeah biomedical physics is what they called it and so uh the, the professor was out of town at the, at the national lab that he's a part of and he's like hey can you give my lectures for me and i said yeah sure whatever Dude, <laughs> how, how was it it went well i mean like i said it's like basic stuff so i i didn't you know i, I felt comfortable with the material but uh there was actually i did run out of slides that he gave me so uh in preparation, I like had some backup slides about the the lab I work in, which is like right next door. I think I may have mentioned it to you a couple of times, but I work in accelerator laboratory. So like I had some slides about, you know, just kind of going down the beam line and like the kids uh, seemed to really like that. In fact, like a couple of them wrote about it in their like course evaluations at the end of the semester. Like, have we never learned about the, the what is it? Accelerator lab next door. I'm like, you know, it's just kind of an afterthought. Yeah, there, yeah, there's something to that. I feel like there's so much stuff happening at OSU where I had no clue. And I realized it after I graduated to where I think back and I'm like, what? Why didn't, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I know that we had the biggest motion capture lab in like North America? Yeah, well, I, it took me till my very last, well, second to last semester uh to actually visit the nuclear reactor at ohio state campus too yeah. i was like this is here yeah like it's 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 pretty cool bro yeah it's nuts i actually went to that too what do, what do you think about the uh, i think it's called sharenkov radiation where you look oh, at man. the pool yeah man that was it, it's it's like a i think it's fascinating because it's it's one of those things in physics that well actually specifically quantum mechanics that uh generally when you talk about quantum you're like oh this is past microscopic scale nanoscale so we can't even dream of seeing it but that's something you can that's some quantum that's actually visible and you can actually talk to people about it. oh that see that blue light oh those are like uh you know gamma like 
what is it doppler shifted gamma rays and you're like whoa what does that mean and then like well let me tell you about some quantum <laughs> all right here here let's let's actually like nerd out nerd out on this a little bit I, i'd want you to explain what it is first because not everybody's seen a nuclear reactor so like paint the picture what like what is osu's nuclear reactor what does that mean uh so it's a reactor typically is just a big cooling bath that's the big tank you see and, and again, actually I'll preface it. I'm not a nuclear engineer. Nuclear engineers are the reactors, but this is what I was able to take away. Uh, the reactor is actually mostly for cooling. That's like a bunch of water. The, the nuclear part comes in when you have these big sticks, these metal, big metal capsules of, uh, filled with uh, treated uranium, basically uranium sticks. And then those will um, radiate, make heat, and when you dip them in water, it makes steam. And so uh, depending on, the, the one at Ohio State's actually just used for um, what that research purposes. So it's not actually like nuclear energy. There's no way that that could be actually used. But basically in their you know, experimental setup, they have this thing called a, I think it's called a rabbit, which is just this little trolley thing that you put your sample into. And then it drives it over into a very nuclear rich like area where it's just getting bombarded with nuclei, uh, uh, specifically neutrons, which makes it very not safe because <laughs> neutrons are the, the dangerous ones. All right, so let me, let me just like pause really quick. It, sure. So it's a, um, at Ohio State, right? There's like, there's like two campuses and then on the, on the campus where like where all the farms are, right? There's this like random building. It's a really tiny inconspicuous building and it turns out it's like super highly protected and there's this, literally a nuclear reactor right and i guess what you're saying is they use it for testing materials like you put a material into this little thing you call a rabbit right your uh your mic cut out oh my, my mistake i but yeah it's i think that's what they call a little rabbit but if in all for all intents and purposes just imagine this little trolley thing that you can open a door set something inside and then it just rides on the track yeah so when you go inside this building, you, you said there's like a pool of water, right? Yeah. So when you enter, there's like a, a safe zone, you know, just like a, a waiting area kind of thing. But then, yeah, you, if you go into the actual reactor, you'll see just huge tanks of this like big tank of water. And so you, they'll, they can, when you take the tour, you'll go up because it's, you know, it's, it's raised. Uh, it's this big tank, this big pool. And so you walk up the stairs and you're able to look down in the water and see this, yeah, this blue glow from certain spots. And, and that's where uh, this, this Cherenkov radiation is happening. Okay, so now, like, okay, I feel like now the scene is pretty much set up because we've seen it. I just wanted to make sure that, you know, everybody else could kind of- Sure, be... sure, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. We're, we're looking into this pool. It's like this very surreal, like, I don't know what kind of blue, like cyan light. Yeah. And okay, so what's happening? What's like, what, what, why am I seeing that light? So I, I, I'll try to put this in the best way I can explain it, but it's, it is literally electromagnetic radiation emitted when like a charged particle, like an electron or proton passes through some like medium, some dielectric medium uh, at a speeder greater than what's called the phase velocity. Uh, and that has its own definition, which is the speed of propagation of a wave through a medium. 
um, of light in, in that medium. So that radiation that actually comes off is a, a excitation and then release of that, of that energy through the excited um, medium that you're, you're passing the, the charged particle through. Um, the blue glow underwater nuclear reactors is, is, is exactly what that is. Um, it, it, a similar cause of like a sonic boom when you like hear a sharp sound heard faster than the sound can like, uh, let me, how, how, am I, how can I explain this? It's like the kind of idea if you want to get general with it, is like when you see an explosion before you actually hear the, the sound, if that makes sense. So I see it before I hear it. Oh, yeah. interesting. That's like, uh, is that is that the same thing that's happening when I see lightning and then I hear thunder after the yeah. fact? Yeah, exactly. And so that's like a, sometimes people mix those up. You always see lightning before you hear the thunder and they kind of like call them the same thing. But yeah, that's exactly the same principle. Oh, I see. So the, like this thing is traveling way faster than like the, I guess the pressure of air can keep up. So you hear it after the fact. Yeah. So, so if I can get more technical, hopefully. Let's, see, let's go for it. Okay, so like the, uh, since light travels slower in materials with refractive indexes greater than one, which a refractive index is just, it's inherent to a material, uh, the speed of light and vacuum cannot be reached or exceeded by particles with, with mass. And so that characteristic blue light is, the, is, is like this, this radiation shift that you're able to, to see with the naked eye. It's, it's actually pretty cool. And I probably didn't do justice in actually explaining it. So if you want to watch like a YouTube video or two, that's usually how I learn about physics stuff. <laughs> right on. But I, so just, I just think go, going back to the, the, the initial point, right? Like we saw this, I saw it pretty early because we did it in like one of our early physics classes. Sure. It was like, holy shit. That's like the most rad thing I think I've ever seen with my eyes. And it's really? just like down near campus. <laughs> which, which physics class? Cause I, I, I switched to physics with you guys and I'm not sure I ever got an opportunity to go until I took an actually nuclear engineering class. Yeah, it was the, uh, the first year sequence. So it was yeah. before Kill Cup. Okay. Yeah, for okay. those of you don't, who don't know, Kill Cup is this legendary class at OSU. <laughs> Bro, he's, he's a freaking wizard. I miss that guy. Yeah, but I feel like if, if, you, if the students in your class were able to get that excited by learning about your research, could you imagine how excited they'd be by actually seeing a nuclear reactor? It, it's, yeah, I don't, it's, it's one of those things like when you see one in person or like when you find out you have it, you can't help but like, oh yeah, I wanna go see it. And then when you, you look at it, you're like, oh my gosh, this is for real. It blows, it blew my mind. <laughs> so I can only imagine someone who doesn't study science or like that like can look at that and, and be completely clueless but still interested it that's that's my that's that's amazing yeah totally like is there anything at so you, uh which i just like give a brief intro of like what school you're at right now uh, i go to florida state university in tallahassee florida and is there anything there while you were still in person that was similar to the nuclear reactor where you're like okay this exists and I'm going to go out of my way to see it. And it's going to be awesome. For science facilities. Yeah, of course. There's a couple here that you don't, 
necessarily have in, in a college town, one of which is the one I work in. It's a similar thing. We have a, a particle accelerator, a linear particle accelerator facility here. We run our own experiments. We as grad students like uh, are able to touch all the knobs and stuff. And so when I found out we had one of those, that was the first things that I wanted to see. And what better person to give you a tour than the uh, the lab director, one of the professors. So I emailed him and got a tour, I think, I don't know, the third week I was in town. And then there's also a, a national lab here or like a sister to a, like a pair of national labs. One is in Los Alamos, Nevada, but it's called the Magnet Lab, the National High Magnetic Field Lab. And there, as its name implies, they just build big magnets and then they can perform really cool uh, experiments on materials like material research. And so a lot of professors will have joint positions there as well. And so that facility is incredible to see and their cool technologies uh, to making these super high field. Uh, I, I can't remember how large of a magnetic field they were able to get, but I think they hold some kind of record for it. Um, but they're, they're designed for these really complicated magnets, like liquid cooled. They have, they're actually like built cylinders and it's like slice by slice, these metal, um, I forget what they're, I think it's copper. And they're actually able to machine them in such that the current will, instead of, you know, if you have metal on top of metal, you know, current is smart in that it will find a path of least resistance. So instead of just like going straight up, you know, these layered pieces of metal, which is what my brain would say, like that's that's an easier path. They can machine it such that going around the spiral that they make is actually uh, a, a path of least resistance for the current and you're able to get, generate gigantic magnetic fields. It's pretty cool. Dude, that sounds actually like an insane uh, engineering problem. So what, yeah. what I want to do is, so there's there's a lot to unpack there. I want I want to go back to to the first thing that you said, which was three weeks. So three weeks into to starting school, you hit up this guy. You're like, can I go see this linear accelerator? Yeah. Uh, is that so? At, at that point, you were just starting. Did you have a research project, or was that like you're just uh, you know feel, feeling you know getting a feel for the the lay of the land? Yeah, I had a, it was it was mostly trying to find a professor. Now, full disclosure, I'm now part of that guy's group and I do nuclear research, but I came into grad school thinking I wanted to do biophysics research. So I reaching out to him and getting a tour was just for gits and shiggles. Like it was just for the fun of seeing it. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm a former engineer now, like physicist. So it's like just hearing about all of their cool uh, electronics and cool vacuum system uh, uh, systems for both just the regular tandem accelerator, but also the cryogenic like superconducting linear accelerator. I was like, oh, that sounds really fun to learn about. But yeah, I, I just, it was mostly just for funsies. So you, you, you do it and then you're like, yo, I want to work with you. And he's just well, like, <clears throat> it was, 
yeah, it was it was more like, oh, this is cool. Well, thank you very much. Shake hands and then go work for a different professor for three months. Uh-huh. And then and then eventually, yeah, find my way like, hey, remember me? <laughs> Do you have a spot in your group, maybe? Uh, how about let's talk about briefly that three month stint and then we'll get back to what you're actually working on. So what did, what did you go do and why, why did you go do it instead of trying to pursue the accelerator further? So I, I used to be in this, uh, like I mentioned, biophysics lab where we were actually collaborators with a gentleman who had founded a company for uh, lipid technologies, lipid being the biomolecular, biomolecular like receptor ligand thing that uh, is responsible for a lot of biological um i'm not an expert here as as it as evidenced by my ums but basically all all i was doing in that lab was using a microscope to take pictures of different types of lipid oil based uh, solutions for i guess i think we they wanted to may remake these these uh lipid diffraction gratings if i'm not mistaken which is it, it can be used for um high throughput uh drug assays yeah i think you sounds familiar with like the new covid stuff like some of the nanoparticles that they use to actually I guess implement the vaccine has to do with lipid nanoparticles or something. Yeah, yeah, dude. That that took a lot of brain strength. I've, I haven't used a lot of those words in years. <laughs> yeah, no, no worries. So, I mean, you you get, you get there. You're working on this thing. Were, yeah, were you just not into it. Yeah. So you know, yeah. During the time, I I I would just do this without question, and I I was I realized like, oh, I. You know, I'm not really that into it. I'm, I don't know where this project's going. Um, I looked at, you know, the biggest thing was, it was, you know, I was back home for Christmas break and I realized over the past couple months, I've learned, you know, nothing <laughs> other than how to use a microscope really well. And I was like, ah, I think I need something a little more uh, you know, intellectually stimulating. Yeah. I think it's funny how those things kind of happen where it's not until you're on a break that you like step back and you're like, Hmm, what was I doing? Man? Yeah. What's this about? You try to like hype up your stuff to your buddies back home and you're just like, wait a second. Did I just look at a micro- microscope for three months? Yeah. Basically it was like, I was explaining it to my mom and dad. I'm like, yeah, well I'm doing this. And they're like, well, cool. Well, what do you want to do with that? What, what are you guys going to do with that? I'm like, uh, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure. So yeah, you're exactly right. Some, even just like a conversation with my mom or something, I'll be like, what the, what am I doing, man? Like, <laughs> or, or, or it'll just like shine a lot of inf- light on something I never actually thought about. So you get back from break and you're just like, I can't do this. Yeah. <clears throat> I told the professor I was working for, sorry, man. I, I think, uh, I think I'm going to try something else. And the cool thing about professors uh, especially if it's your like first, second year when you're not entirely sure of what you want to do. They're super cool with that. They're very understanding. So he's like, yeah, of course. Uh, but Are you afraid at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is another tangent we can get down, but I, I actually came here in a special program uh, 
my my plan was I'm here for a master's, two years, and then I'm out. So like I was like, oh crap, I got um, I got to find a new project. And what I had liked about this biophysics guy was that was the kind of research I did back in undergrad. Like I was doing biomedical engineering research, but same kind of stuff, cell assays, uh, using microscopes on the daily. So that was really comfortable. That was what I knew. Uh, so now having to find some guy or, or girl, somebody I could work with and basically be starting somewhat fresh. That was very intimidating. <laughs> yeah. Very intimidating. And, you know, also, can I finish a project in a, you know, a year and a half? Can I? I'm not sure. It was, it was, it was quite the choice, but, you know, I, I didn't hesitate to make it, if that makes sense. I'm just like, I got to get out of here and find something new. I, I'd really, I really dig that because it's, to, to me, that sounds like even if I can't finish the project, I'm still going to learn more than I would otherwise. Like at the end of the day, isn't that what it's about? Is like learning some hype stuff. Oh yeah, graduate school is. That's like the reason you go to graduate school is to learn like one, learn a you know a, about something you're interested in, but also master one little thing about it that you make it your own and you kind of change the field or add something to your field. Right. So I, I do want to dig into the um, the whole like structure of how you got into the program, but we'll, let, let's, let's continue down this thread, which is, okay, so you had a conversation with your advisor. You're like, okay, I can't do this. And then what do you say? You hit up that guy that you met in the beginning? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, I kind of shopped around uh, because obviously if, if I, re I recognize that if I were to go with this guy, I would be doing a lot, a lot of uh, quote unquote engineering, like a lot of stuff in the lab. So I tried to find out if there were other opportunities before that. Uh, so I checked with a couple of professors who have um, connections to Jefferson Laboratory, actually one of which was the guy I, I taught for last spring, the guy who I, I gave a lecture, two lectures for, that guy. Uh, and that stuff was really cool, but big collaborations uh, are very, are even more slow moving than like regular academic research. So I was like, ah, that's also not very enticing to like have one, maybe two publications by the time you're done with uh, your PhD. Uh, you know, that kind of sounds a little, that, that sounds a little bit pretentious. Like I want, I want pubs, but also it's like, it's, I don't know. That's how the game goes. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, it was like maybe third or fourth on my list was that guy uh, that, and then I talked with him, asked him, do you think you have a project I could finish in like a year and a half? And he's like, he said, well, give me a few days. I can think about it. And two days later, he emailed me with an idea for a project. And I said, I think that's manageable. What was the project? Hey, can you build me this kind of detector? And I said, sure. I can do that. <laughs> and at this point, uh, I just want to be clear, you're, you're still thinking about leaving after that, after that 1.5 years. Yeah. Uh, my, my, again, my end game hadn't changed two years, take this master's in this, in this special program and then sayonara, uh, whether it be 
uh, a different PhD program closer to home or a job back closer to home. I just wanted to get near my family. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I was, my plan was just still, I'm outy, man. <laughs> yeah. I feel that. I feel that. So, okay. But well, let's like walk me through it now. So you, you're like, okay, I'll build you this detector. What you want to, you want to get into details about what it is that this detector does, or actually I think it'd be more beneficial to like explain roughly overarching the overarching goal of the lab. You said it's a linear accelerator, but that I don't, I, I don't necessarily know what the objective there is. Yeah. So the, to, to generalize, my professor is interested in uh, nuclear astrophysics, specifically Big Bang nucleosynthesis uh, and its application in, in like star formation or planet formation kind of thing. So that, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the goal by which we structure our experiments and what we want to study. Uh, but on a day-to-day -day basis, it's for me at least, I haven't delved too, too deeply into the actual nuclear or the astrophysics enough, but like not a lot. My day-to-day -day is a lot more, yeah, the, the lab maintenance and uh, calibrating detectors, uh, messing with the software from like the data acquisition and stuff. Um, but in answer to your earlier question, my specific detector will not replace, but run parallel alongside this other fancy detector called a focal plane detector. And these things are within this big instrument called a uh, Engie split pole spectrograph. Now this thing that we, this is basically for all intents of purposes, it's this magnetic spectrometer. Like you, you measure, or you're able to see what kind of particles you're actually traveling through this magnet by how they bend in the magnetic field that it generates. Um, you were in physics a little bit. So you remember like if anything has charge, it'll be affected by a magnetic field. That's yeah. like electrodynamic kind of thing. So yeah, depending on the mass and charge of your particle, it will bend a certain radius and they will kind of focus like optics, focus on specific regions on this thing called a focal plane you know, focal point, there's a focal plane where these particles will just like hone in on. And so on the focal plane, we put a focal plane detector and that's what I'm making. Okay. So just, I want to put this into perspective a little bit. Is this inside the linear accelerator or like, where does that linear accelerator come into play? Or is this something so, different? Yeah, it's a different instrument. It's okay. actually, it's actually at the very end of the beam line in a completely different room. Okay. But uh, that's my realm that's what i'm doing with the spectrograph but uh in terms of the accelerator it's it's yeah two rooms away you know maybe a hundred feet of beam pipe away <laughs> you know uh but yeah so we'll have a particle beam from the accelerator come through a beam line and then steered with different kinds of magnets until it eventually reaches the spectrograph where we'll have a target chamber. So it's like a, 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 a beam of particles hitting a stationary target. And then the um, decays and like the resultant uh, projectiles that come from the excitations on that target are what we actually send through this spectrograph and measure at the focal plane. 
All right. So that, that definitely helps me put it into perspective. I, this is going to, might sound kind of annoying, but I want to keep, I want to like dig more, even like more higher level. Right. So sure. there's this linear accelerator thing. Like what do you, I guess it's not clear to me what exactly that's doing or how it works, because it seems like it's forming some beam that you're shooting at a target. That's what I got. Yeah, basically. Well, there's, there's a lot to, to that question, Mo. And yeah, I really, it's, it's, it's really hard because there's no, I can't show diagrams to listeners, but yeah, I'll, I'll take it you step by step. Yeah, I'll, yeah. Step by step. You have this thing called a source. I think from its name, it, we, we can imply that it's what actually gives us the first uh, positive or negative charged beam that we can send into the, the accelerator. Okay. Uh, and we do that with, it depends on which, source you're talking about but if we're talking about uh like the SNICS source I, f I forgot what the acronym but it's it's like plates of cesium that you make real hot and then that kind of evaporates a little bit and then with with magnets and some like a little bit of per, like a, a flow a little bit of air pushing it into some the first set of like pre-accelerator magnets okay so we have this cloud of negative ions we're kind of pushing it towards uh like some some magnet it gets a little bit of a kick all right so now so now we enter the real tandem accelerator and now we have a an a 9 mev tandem pelotron accelerator pelotron uh meaning uh pellets like the there are these little uh chain links that to help build up term like the the voltage on the terminal inside this accelerator, which actually gives us um, the power we need to kick the this, these beams of these particles individually along. Uh, it's literally just static electricity being built up on this terminal from these chains, which run on both the low energy side and the high energy side. Uh, of the of the tandem so if for you this will only i think I there's a good picture right you said there's this like cloud of ions and your objective is to first push it with air and then push it with some kind of other force and not just, with not with not with air but but yeah just a little bit of flow from of, of a certain kind of, of of gas but not oh air. okay not air so it's some kind of gas that pushes it initially and then it keeps getting sped up and sped up and sped up and sped up so it gets a little bit of a kick, yes. And then the the terminal voltage, the terminal in, in, inside the, the accelerator itself is how you power the the huge magnetic, you, you make this gigantic electric field so that the, the electrons or the negative ions will get uh, attracted to it if you have this big positive potential on it. So when I say big potential, uh, we put, like eight uh, megavolts, like eight million volts on this terminal. Oh, geez. So for some perspective, your car battery, a car is like 12 volts, right? We put eight million volts on this thing. <laughs> and again, it's all, uh, we set it and then it's maintained by these pellets running along this chain, just picking up a bunch of static electricity and dumping it more and more into this terminal, um, on, this, on this terminal. And so I don't know, an obvious question is like, well, how do you protect it from sparking if you have this big metal tank? 
Well, we, we actually fill this tank with uh, sulfur, oh shoot, what is, what's six? Hexafluoride, sulfur hexafluoride. It's like an insulating gas okay. as, to, as to avoid sparking. And, and so like this is a very in, inert gas. It's very high excitation energy. So it's, it keeps metal on metal pretty safe. But we do have methods to like discharge a little bit if need be. But we make this gigantic electric field. The part, the negatively charged particles will rush, you know, accelerate towards this huge, uh, this terminal at, at huge uh, positive potential, and then these ions will pass through this thing called a stripper foil. And the stripper foil's job is just to, as his name implies, strip electrons off, strip off like the the excess. Uh, electron to make it then when it passes through this thing positively charged. So going back from the source, we have a negatively charged beam, but after it passes through this stripper foil, we now have a positive beam that's going very fast. And that's the one that we send out to our experiments. Okay. But uh, yeah, I, hopefully that's some illustration. Uh, I can, Maybe you can like attach pictures or something. <laughs> I, think, I think that's like a very solid illustration. And I don't mean to ask like really obtuse questions. I just, I just want to like kind of get a physical visual of what's going no, on. No, no, of, of course, of course. It's just like when you ask that, how does it work? Well, there's a lot of freaking parts. Uh, yeah. And so there's a lot to explain and uh, yeah. a lot of jargon that I can start to throw out there. So I'm trying to like navigate that. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. I don't, I also, yeah, I'll, I'll be more specific. I just... Yeah, the objective is really to like get like a sort of a caricature. So now we have this positive beam of, you call it, we call them ions? Yeah, like an ion, part of, a, we could just call it a particle beam at this point, because that's what mm -hmm. it is. At this point, we now have like taken this gas, sent it through an accelerator to bump it up to, yeah, around 8 MeV in energy. So when you describe like particles, it, it, it's, it's more typical you describe them by their energy, not necessarily their, their velocity because you don't, you don't actually really know that. But yeah, it's a particle beam. And so then at this point, it's, I guess like uh, for lack of better term, I would say it's kind of sloppy. And so you have to then, as it travels along the beam pipe, kind of sh uh, shape it more with, uh, with with magnets and so the and then that gets pretty complicated in itself because there's literally experts out there in what's called beam optics uh -huh. and they can and, and they can you know design maintain and and uh, run really fancy simulations of these of these ma magnets these these quadrupole or switching magnets it's uh it's it's an art form really but you kind of hone it how you want it to actually look when it hits your target um, because you can have it more um, you can have it more accurate and precise in like energy or like more accurate in time and if you can kind of picture this like phase space diagram it's like an it's like an oval which you can like rotate to get more precise energy measurements or more precise time measurements and tip Typically we, we go for, we want to know the time. So, uh, but yeah, travels on the beam pipe. And then in our facility, there's different target rooms that you can send it to. So you can send it off to the first one where 
a lot of my friends who are in what they, they call themselves the gamma gang, uh, the gamma, the gamma spectro spectroscopists, they, they maintain target room one. Uh, and then, or you can just send it all the way over to target room two, where it has our setup that I'm, I'm a part of. And then some other radioactive um, beam uh, or what, what do they call it? Resonant radioactive where they measure neutrons and stuff. I'll leave it at that. I don't want to get too bogged down by words. <laughs> yeah, a lot of jargons. And then one of those rooms is yours. Well, I'm, yeah, I, I share target room too with, with some other people, but yeah, that's where my, that's where our instruments um, resides. Okay. So I guess uh, what's a target. So you have this, this beam that's not sloppy anymore and you're, it's like precisely measurable in you said time. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, what yeah. is it? it hits. It hits uh, these. Again, this this itself is an art form as well. Making these these targets, and they're actually just really thin foils. Okay. Of of whatever uh, whatever nucleus that you're trying to study. So, I was a I was a uh, I ran an experiment. I was part of an experiment last week that the target was, or two weeks ago, it was. 50 titanium and then I think it was also mixed with carbon on a carbon like backing I guess like a carbon to actually give it some rigidity but but what, what that forces you to do is okay now you have the nucleus of interest that you're you're actually trying to measure things off of but also you've introduced a little bit of a contaminant of, car of carbon well depending on what carbon it is it's it's easy to subtract that off because you can run just like a carbon target, see what that spectrum that you get out looks like, and then just subtract it away. And then you have this, this nice spectrum of, of um, resonant energy of, of the 50 titanium. I think that reaction was 50 titanium DP, deuteron beam, proton ejectile. And then we were looking at states in titanium, 51 if i'm not mistaken so the, the that's like a very practical thing right to to put that carbon backing on it is just to make that foil that's titanium easier to like physically manufacture so pra practical is it depends on what you tar what target you want yeah because it gets incredibly complicated depending on what it is that you want and also it could become a radiation hazard depending like if you have something that's really radioactive as a target uh that's always you know being able to manufacture that safely and then store it safely ship it safely but yeah putting it on these like carbon backings or i've heard of other ones uh is sometimes pretty pretty manageable um again i'm uh, that is in an art form i I, yeah. I know very little about that. So okay. I, I don't think I, I, I can speak on behalf of that very well. Okay, that's super fair. So this beam hits this foil, which is you know, a better picture in my head now. And now this, this obviously results in some kind of like explosion, right? Explosion, yeah. I, I mean, it's, explosion. I mean, like it's, 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 you're irradiating it. So yeah, you're, you're a micro, microscopic explosion. But basically, you just you you shoot this target with a beam of particles. Those particles will interact via some 
nuclear uh, excitation or decay channel that we can, you know, typically we know exactly how it will decay. And then, yeah, the, the projectiles from the decays of like these excited nuclei on this target get sent off to the, the big mag magnetic field that it will go through. Got it. And that's, that's really where you come in, right? You're looking at these offshoot, these offshot, whatever the word is, particles, and you're seeing how they bend using this, this tool that you were talking about? Yeah. And so then you can, from, from our, at the end of the day, our, what we typically uh, present at, you know, conferences and stuff are, are cross-section measurements of particular uh, reaction rates uh, or these things called angular distributions, which tell you a lot about how the, the angular momentum of the uh, target changed or how those decays, how the, there's, there's like a preferential direction or spin that these things have. Again, that's really technical, but basically, yeah, we, we, we can say some stuff about the angular momentum of projectile beam and, and uh, tar like target. And then also, uh, what did I say? Scattering cross-sections, or not scattering cross-sections, but cross-sections in general, some like usually scattering though. <laughs> so I guess the, the question is like, what goes into you making that? Like your, your advisor says, I need you to make this piece of equipment, right? Yeah. Okay. So you, you kind of have this picture of what's going on and then you like, how, how do you proceed? Well, yeah, step one for me was learning how the instrument itself works because I, I, again, like I'm building a contraption within another contraption, which is attached to this other contraption and so on and so forth. So I, if I want to understand how this thing works, I need to understand how, the bigger thing works so I can to like a design to those features or those uh, bugs in some sense. So I, I learned a lot about how the split pole spectrograph worked. And then, then I turned my sights towards, well, what kind of detector am I making? Well, I'm, I'm making this kind of detector, which then sends me down this rabbit hole to learn about just like the standard theory about how this particular kind of detector works. Again, you can always fall down rabbit holes like, oh, I'm learning about this detector, but then oh, I'm gonna take this tangent and read about this other detector, blah, blah, blah. That, so it's been a long process of just understanding how they work. And then uh, the third step, or yeah, the, the third step I've, I've taken is Okay, I have never designed a a de particle detector before, so somebody in on staff, can you explain to me what goes into like actually designing this kind of thing? And you know, fortunate for me, there are some very very bright staff people at at the lab, and you know, their job is to help grad students um, with this stuff, and so they're all very very generous with their time, and uh, they've taught me a lot. Um, but I, I am in charge of a detector that is for what we refer to as heavy ions, like helium four and a little bit heavier. Uh, and so 
I had to sit down with some staff members and, and, and we've had to really think about how, you know, detecting a proton is a lot different than detecting, say, oxygen 16. Way more mass, way different kind of electronics that you need. I shouldn't say way different, but detecting it, it, it requires different kinds of, of uh, you know, pressure, electric field with inside the detector. There's a lot of very, very uh, sense little, little dials that you can mess with to, to up the sensitivity to something versus something else. So I have had, that's been my main uh, challenge for, I would say, I've been in the group almost two years for like a year and a half of that has been learning how to make electronics or design electronics and fabricate them for this, but also we can change some uh, aspects and now we can measure this. It's It's been fun, but challenging. <laughs> I believe it. It seems like not only do you need to know the fundamental physics, but now you basically need to become a mechanical and electrical engineer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it's, that's, uh, I'm, I'm a glorified engineer right now with the, with the title of physicist. And for some reason, I feel very, very comfortable with that. Yeah. I guess uh, in that two years span, I guess it's been a little bit more. You've gone from, okay, I need to reach out to somebody to make this, this piece of equipment to you currently have prototypes. Yeah. So uh, I'm in, I think like the third or fourth iteration of stuff I I've, I've built uh, what's, referred to as a, or there's, it's actually one detector, but it's made up of two smaller ones. There's one that's called a parallel plate avalanche counter followed by a Bragg curve detector. And so then there's like this metal box that we fill with gas and a second metal box that we fill with gas and electronics. The first one that the parallel plate avalanche counter, I, I call it PPAC on the daily basis. Basically a parallel plate uh, um, uh, is one piece of metal is positively charged. The other one is negatively charged. So then you have an electric field between the two electrodes of pieces of metal. Uh, and so with high, uh, high potential across that, those electrodes and low gas pressure, uh, it yields the correct conditions for what's called an electron avalanche, which is uh, if a, an incident particle uh, goes through this electric field, uh, which is gas in between you know, these, these electrodes as well, this incident particle will ionize one of the uh, mo molecules in the gas and strip one of those electrons off. And then since there's a gigantic magnetic field, it'll start moving, accelerating in the direction of you know, depending on its charge, if it's an electron, it'll be, uh, it'll be uh, attracted towards the anode. It'll start accelerating down towards the anode, but before you actually hit the anode, there's a bunch of other gas molecules in the way. So this thing will then ionize another molecule. And now we have two electrons starting to accelerate. And then they subsequently start doing the exact same thing. And you eventually build up enough of like this, they call it an avalanche, this electric, uh, this electric charge that it builds up on the plate and you're actually able to detect it um, on, on, on um, using some uh, 
amplification methods, but you're able to detect this stuff. So that's how I'm able to, so using that, I'm able to see where on the focal plane is its position. And then in the Bragg curve detector on the second part, I'm able to measure a whole bunch of other stuff, incident angle, energy loss, time of flight. Uh, this is where we actually measure the charge of the, of the particle as well. So we're able to identify it. So particle ID, particle identification. And then um, a second verification of its position. So these two you know, gas boxes filled with certain types of foil that I throw in there, I'm able to um, pick up all these different um, measurements. And so going back to, I know I just went on quite a bit of a tangent, but like I said, I'm on my third or fourth iteration of the Bragg curve detector part. I kind of explained it because if I just say I'm on the third iteration of this yeah. and this, it's, there's no context. So, but yeah, I've, I've, I've kind of been streamlining the electronics and types of gas, types of foils I, I use. And so um, I shouldn't say unfortunately, but I, I'm still not in a place I really want to like, you know, uh, be able to use it in a real experiment, but I have this thing that I can like hold and be like, I made this. Yeah. So that's, I think that's the, process pretty cool. of, the process of creating scientific instrumentation is always very magical to me, right? Because you're creating something that's going to allow somebody to, to basically measure something that they couldn't before, which allows you yeah. to, that you couldn't have, have never built before. It's it for sure. And, and, and even more, I'll take that feeling and, and uh, step it up to say, I'm building this, <clears throat> I'm building this thing. And then when I leave, it'll still be here. So then people after me will be running their experiments using my detector, which is pretty cool to think about. Like I, yeah. I, I've been thinking about having the machine as kind of like, you know, with a, with a mill or something like mark my initials in there or something. I think that'd be funny, but yeah. yeah, it's 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 a crazy feeling. You could name the the pair of modules after yourself. Exactly. <laughs> well, it's a, okay. I, there's a, like, a couple of questions. I, I want to like without digging too much into the actual detail of the detectors, the process of going from like concepts to physical device, right? That like th like that that's very nonlinear. Like you have to spend money to actually manufacture stuff. So. Was that process kind of unnerving or new to you? It wasn't a hundred percent new because I I've had some kind of like uh, background in designing and building stuff, but yeah, it was pretty intimidating. That you know, I would always in my in my past experience before this, I would always like report to somebody and like so. I did this, will this work? And then they could say like, oh yeah, thank you. Or maybe do this and then bring it back. I'm now the guy <laughs> that's in charge and making all the calls. So yeah, being able to, <clears throat> and I guess another another layer to this is that no one, no other grad students really have built a complicated detector like this. So I was basically on my own so just to, and, and with no, I was basing it off of one detector, but you know, the people that made the original one had no like drawings, no like real records of like, even what chips they 
put like, uh, you know, electronic chips they put in there. And I'm like, oh man, all right, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna use this one. And that ability to just say, all right, to move forward, we just gotta pick one and see how it works. That was, that is super, even like to this day, it's super nerve wracking. Like I'm gonna just pick this thing, possibly, you know, spend, well, not possibly, definitely spend hours uh, making things around this, maybe to find out that this certain thing that I chose doesn't work. So then I have to redo all of it, but that's always, that's always nerve wracking for me, but it's, you know, the more I've had to do it, the more I'm comfortable with it. Yeah. There's something to that process, I think, right? Where you're okay. You have nobody to fall back on. You have all this responsibility. It's someone else's money, presumably. It's, yeah, it's like great money. Hey, shout out, shout out NSF. <laughs> right. Like that, that's such a cool, cool position to be in, in my opinion, because I feel like that's probably the position in which you learn the most, right? That kind of liability, it's not even liability, but responsibility combined with uncertainty. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it's something that I, I'm not, like I said, I'm, I don't think I'm used to it yet, but I'm more comfortable with it. Yeah. So I, will I ever be comfortable with it? I'm sorry. Will I ever like not get nervous when I'm doing it? Probably not because this, yeah. If you want to make fancier detectors, you have to have fancier everything. And that's going to just trial and error for a lot of things. Yeah. It's cool though. It's cool. You put a lot of other uh, physical experiments into perspective for you then, because sometime at some point, somebody was in the same position as you making that, even that accelerator, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh my gosh. To design, I mean, accelerator aside, like just like an instrument, uh, like the spectrograph making these gigantic like uh, coils that you run current through just just the the shape of that will change your magnetic field and like how it bends stuff yeah no i definitely have a lot of respect for people before me and uh i i, I will i will shout them out again like the the staff at the lab i work were are very very intelligent guys and they i've had conversations with them like yeah i can't imagine having to design something like this i just know how to work this like to have the idea to do this and this and like make this <clears throat> this uh this you know linear accelerator for example like that's so much that's that it, ha it takes a special person to, to like actually have the the ambition and then also like the uh, what's the word stamina to like keep up with like constant like failings and then like just keep going if that makes sense yeah totally i feel like on top of that it also seems kind of dangerous right because what maybe somebody didn't realize to put that insulating gas that you were talking about and it dished oh yeah <laughs> yeah oh man yeah yeah that's also something i'm worried about because i've i've uh i've done it a couple times where i forgot to like flow the gas in or something and i just fire stuff up like all the electronics up i'm like oh shoot i gotta turn everything back off i almost just i almost just destroyed like uh, two months of work oh my gosh no yeah it's, it is definitely some of these things are dangerous which is why 
this, there is a clear line of stuff that we're as grad students allowed to touch. And then if it's, if it's, if you can do this, you know, uh, flow chart of things in your troubleshooting and it gets to a point, they're like, do not touch anything else. Call us. Yeah. <laughs> and we all go, yes, sir. <laughs> we're not going to mess with this. Cause yeah, like the, there's like the, the risk of the actual equipment, but there's also the risk of radiation. Like that's the biggest uh, safety factor, uh, safety uh, risk in our lab, to be honest with you. Cause a lot of the stuff that we use and operate, there's so many fail safes that uh, we'd be fine that, and we'd be fine there in the equipment, I'm sorry, the equipment, but there's no protecting you from <laughs> all those particles decaying like right in front of your body. Yeah, totally, totally. I guess uh, you, you kind of painted this picture in my head of you're standing in front of this giant, very complicated machine with like a bunch of knobs and stuff. Did you ever like separate yourself and look at what you're doing and think like, holy shit, like, yo, I, I know how to operate this thing and I'm creating tools to make measurements on this thing. Right, no, it's it's, I will, I will say that when I start explaining it to people, like what we're doing here, I definitely get like, a, I don't know, I, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of like remove myself and like, oh shoot, like what I'm doing is actually pretty cool. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I had a, a, a relative in for, for Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving break a couple of weeks ago. And the first thing I, I did was take him to the lab and give him a tour because we had just finished up. We just wrapped up an experiment. So things were still like not not on, but, you know, powered up in like the in, in the uh, uh, oh, what's. Uh, idle, I, that's the word idle mode, you know, so I was able to just like step them through everything and and at the end of it or like maybe right in the middle of it, I'm like, holy crap, like this is cool stuff. And I get to touch like most of it, which is even, even more bonkers. They trust me enough <laughs> to like with very little training. I'm just kidding. We get training, but like enough training that like uh, I still look at a problem. And I'm like, I'm not really sure how to handle this, but you know, as you do it more and more, you get like a little more confident, but it does, it is really, it is a quite the sensation to like, be reminded that not everyone gets to do this. And so it's, it's pretty, pretty, pretty great feeling. Totally. I mean, it sounds like just to me, it sounds like the coolest thing in the world. Like, holy shit, you're making, you're making these powerful laser beams. And then you're making these really highly technical pieces of electronics that nobody's ever created before. And there's no manual for how to do it. Are you, are you creating the manuals as you go so that somebody like down the road can be like, okay, I can, I can save some time. Yeah. At some point I have to write a manual how to operate my thing. I'm not looking forward to it. Cause I've, I've been, I will, I will be the first to tell you I'm, I've done a very mediocre job of keeping track of, of like all the aspects that all the little, you know, things that you know how to operate it only by doing it and messing with it for hours. Like, uh, but yeah, I will eventually have to write a manual. Uh, but I do want to make it clear. I'm I'm basing mine off of stuff that's done been done before. So like you know, ionization chambers or Bragg curve chambers. It's it's but yeah, like I it feels amazing to 
to like look at the fruits of your labor in tangible form, you know, something yeah. that like uh, I never really got when I finished a piece of really cool code, like code, like, oh, this is something fancy. All right, cool. But like building something with your hands and then being able to hold it like nice. There's like some uh, there's some satisfaction from that, that, you know, I can't really explain. I totally feel that. Uh, so I guess like, you know, we're talking, we're talking about like, like stepping out from what you're doing on the day to day, right? Uh, how does, how does like this, this process that you just talked to me through kind of relate to the overarching goal of your lab? Like, it's not clear to me how uh, shooting this beam at foil and then measuring these, these different components to the, the, the offshoot, like how that relates to like stellar astrophysics at the high energy. Like, could you kind of bridge those a little bit yeah so it's another question that there's a lot to unpack but i would i will say that our experiments that we run are <clears throat> for the purposes of studying in astrophysical um or or at like nuclear astrophysics uh question or or problem or or mystery or something like that for example in nuclear astrophysics, there exists this thing called the lithium problem, where, uh, now I'm, I'm not, I don't, I, I, again, I'm, I'm not the expert of this, but there's someone in my group studying the, for primordial, like lithium, there are these, there are these very complicated simulations or Monte Carlo stuff that, <clears throat> are very much off from like, say, experimentally measured uh, nuclear reaction uh, rates uh, of this particular type of lithium. And, and so what we can do in the lab is not, you know, a, not a big bang nuclear synthesis experiment, that's a lot of energy, but we can scale it way, way down to a, a reaction network that we can handle within the lab but it will mirror the same physics that uh, something that like a uh, super high energy big bang nucleosynthesis chain reaction will follow. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot. That makes a lot of sense. Right? So we 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 take we take these big picture things and scale it down to something that we can do in the lab, which will mirror the same physics that that, that you see at those those gigantic. Uh, or the, the, the larger scale stuff. Totally. So, so here's like another question, right? So uh, I feel like there's something to being the person who creates the instrumentation that like that nobody else can have appreciation for, right? Like you have to know the system so well to design this thing that's capturing this very specific aspect of it. So like, I feel like combining that with an actual like underlying model or, or, or like being the person to put that to an underlying model, like I, I feel like nobody could probably do it as well as you, right? Or is that like that not really that fair to say? I, I think, well, me personally, there's a lot, there's a lot of people that could do a lot better than me, but I think I know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, like we as experimentalists, I, I will say in my experience in nuclear physics, <clears throat> this is the first, this is one of the best relationships I've witnessed between experimentalists and theorists because they do work so much uh, in tandem 
they have to because like i said some of these astrophysical models and stuff they they give uh, sometimes pretty wacky results and then it's our job in the lab ex experimentalists to like try to see if we can measure something like that and so yeah i think uh this this yin and yang of of the theorists and experimentalists um and the respect that we have for one another does make things easy uh but not necessarily that we know every little detail of how to make things work or or even actually what are what's worth studying what is attainable in the lab if right that makes sense yeah, yeah i think that makes sense like they both inform each other in their own ways right? yeah and there's, that's like a very interesting interplay then. So wh where are you headed with this, right? So I guess, uh, how far along are you in your PhD? So, I've, so as I mentioned, I was a part of this special program through American Physical Society, but I was a first only a master's student. So I am in my third year of graduate school, but relative to a PhD, I'm technically like second second year uh because i still have to do all this you know uh, take the take this test and give this presentation and do this other administrative stuff so yeah i'm i'm, I'm about two years through a phd okay so like you want to go into that that program that we keep talking about so like what's what's the deal you, you uh, so we went to the same university together right you you ended up majoring in in physics uh, so I, I, I switched from mechanical engineering to engineering physics. So my degree is still in engineering technically, okay. but yeah. And you go to this program that we like, we keep alluding to through, through APS and yeah. what is that program? It's the, uh, APS masters to PhD bridge program. Okay. And, and so it's a, you know, it's pretty, it, the, the typical path of, a physics PhD is you'll do four year undergrad. And then from there you get accepted to PhD directly. And so then uh, it's really unusual in at least America in the United States to get a master's in physics and then, you know, switch to a different university or proceed into a PhD. Like it's, it's usually just all in one, you make it to the PhD first, but uh, this particular program was started through APS back in, I think, 2012, 2013, uh, to increase the number of PhDs awarded to underrepresented minorities in physics. And so that includes, but not limited to uh, black people, women, Hispanic people, et cetera, kind of thing. Uh, it's, a very, it's a very specific demographic when you think of physicists. And so through this program, they, they uh, select students that were rejected. That's kind of like a key component when I applied was that you rejected from PhD programs. And so then they'll take a look at your application on a more, uh, I guess, holistic review of it. And so for this program, it's like you get interviewed and there's different like uh, essay prompts that you have to do even after getting an interview. And so it's, it's like, it's still in its own way rigorous, but 
there are participating universities across the United States. A lot more have been added since, but uh, you, you, if you were accepted, you go to these universities and you just kind of live the life of a graduate, a PhD graduate student, except you're more, uh, I'll say that we have the added advantage of having a bridge program um, uh, mentor component. So we, we can get a little more supervision and uh, the intention for, you know, the way I was going to use it, the intention is to go to these programs, kind of build your research cred. You know, you get a research project, you can take some grad level classes, you know, maybe boost your GPA, uh, kind of like make you more competitive in, in one of these PhD program pools. And so, like I mentioned, like, what I don't know, 40 minutes ago when we started talking, I was intending on using it like that, just take my master's and apply to a PhD program closer to home. Uh, but it kind of worked out different because <laughs> here yeah. I am a PhD student now. So you basically, after that, I was, you say two years? Yeah, two years. Uh, after that two years, you're just like, okay, I'm staying here. I'm going to work on this, this project. And this, this is it. Well, it, it took a little less than two years, but yeah, basically, um, you know, I, I found my advisor is fantastic. I love, I love that guy. My group and I work really well together, very genuinely nice people. And honestly, the, the kind of nuclear physics education I'm going to receive here is some of the best in not just the United States, but anyone doing nuclear physics, uh, FSU PhDs are um are taken very seriously and there's a number of reasons for that but what are those reasons uh, if you hit me with them is sir did direct is direct the one who went to florida yeah he he, yeah, right? he 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 came here what like on his after all of his fancy you know quantum theory stuff but he he moved he he went to vacation in tallahassee florida yeah ended up really, really liking it. He fell in love. <laughs> he fell in love like swimming in the swamps here. And then he moved and got a full professorship uh, at Florida State. So he, I, I forgot how many years he was, he was actually a professor here, but he did like lecture and do a little bit of research. And so, yeah, uh, he's a renowned physicist. He has a, a library named after him here. He has a, uh, a, a couple other buildings, a, a statue. He has a statue here as well. Uh, is it a pretty cool statue? No, dude. Like, <laughs> uh, I, I think, I, I mean, reading about him, he was a very quiet, awkward, like, dude. So I guess in that sense, that that statue, it, it's in an uncomfortable position and like all weird looking. I'm like, if that's what he's actually like, I actually think that does him justice. But he still look, it still looks awkward. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, but yeah, going back to so. Uh, why? Yeah, so FSU grad students are are very well respected because I would say um, um, mostly like the the stuff that we learn here and you know us being able to uh, control the tandem, uh, all the other vacuum systems, the the electronics that we use, the we get to actually 
go, you know, set the potential on this and, and turn this dial and stuff. That's an experience that you won't get as a grad student from basically any other nuclear lab because those are all big user facilities. And, and by that, I mean, they have staff members who will run, who are in charge of all that. They'll run all the stuff. You tell them what you, what experiment you want, and then they'll get you the beam and they'll set all their electronics and stuff. And then they'll just hand you the data afterwards. And then you don't, versus here, we do all that. <laughs> and so I think the, the main experience I tell people about was we were up for renewal on our NSF grant this past year. And so in February, NSF actually sent a, a committee of different nuclear professors or, or nuclear scientists in the United States to, you know, Tallahassee here where we, ha we hosted them for like a site visit, a site evaluation. And one of the gentlemen was a hotshot, like he worked for the U.S. Navy, like nuclear scientist. I forgot his exact position, but he, one of the main, you know, dudes in the Navy or like Navy nuclear division or whatever was, he graduated, he got his PhD here at Florida State. And he, he I was sitting there just eating pizza with this guy and he was like, yeah, the, the, the reputation of Florida State nuclear physics is a lot better than you than anyone would even think. Like they, they they know they're getting a solid like nuclear scientist when they 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 find out they went to Florida State for it. So that was a very uh, I don't know eye opening I guess. Like oh okay so like if I stay here with these cool people and this awesome advisor I'll also be pretty competitive in the job market. Yeah. Sounds pretty great to me. Dude, plus you're in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. I am in Florida. Can't, can't uh, forget about that. Though I am, I am like about mm, two hours away from really nice beaches, but yeah, it's, it's nice. It's nice here. Is that like uh, a weekend trip type thing? Yeah, it is. If, but uh, before I did go. I did go to the beach on Thanksgiving, and don't worry. I paid extra to be on the private part of the island, so like there was no one around because distancing and stuff. But uh, but yeah, that, that before that had been months, man. Like you just kind of. It's one of those things. If it's if it's readily there, you just kind of like you do it uh, like a lot at first, and then after that, you're like, eh, I could go drive two hours sit on the beach or i can just watch tv you know <laughs> like, yeah. uh, that's actually a very interesting point because i feel like this happens right where there's this really cool thing that you've been building up in your head and you're like heck yeah i'm gonna go there i'm gonna go like do it as much as i can but then when you live there it's too accessible and you're like eh, i'll do it i'll do it a month from now i'll do it later it doesn't matter it's gonna be there yeah, and now that it's winter, I don't want to do it until uh, it starts warming up again. But uh, yeah, it's I I I really like going to the beach. I I won't I won't lie about that. Like it's fantastic when I do go. It's just like the the planning and then driving, and then you have to drive home. That that's the that, that's the part that like uh, that gets me. But I, I do like spacing it out when I do go because I I still have 
like a bunch of fun when I go to the beach. So I want to keep it that way. I don't want to, I don't want that to become my new, you know, uh, just like put a, put a chair outside my front door kind of thing. Like this, this is now normal. This is okay. <laughs> I want it still to be, this is fantastic when I do go. I feel that. I feel that. So I, I get this kind of like brings me to something I'm very curious about with PhD students is like, how, how do you, maintain a work-life balance right you're it seems like your big like one of the things that you said was great about florida florida state was that you can be the one like cranking all the knobs conducting the experiments from start to end, start to end but something about that seems like it would be a lot more time consuming right because mm-hmm. you have to be really good you have to get really good at two things instead of one now so yeah. like, i guess uh yeah how, how do you uh- it's been quite the process. I'm not going to lie. Uh, and it's only gotten easier as I have to, I, I take less classes. So, um, yes, invent you. There is a huge learning curve in the lab that I had to succumb or overcome. Uh, and then in addition to that, I have to keep up with my classes and while also, you know, having hobbies and like having time to relax. <clears throat> I don't think I'm a pro at it yet, but what I, I have been able, I've been, I've been able to um, work more, force something, some like extracurriculars into my, into my evenings because I, because I had just by uh, necessity, like if I don't, sit here and play guitar for an hour and a half i'm just going to stress more about that homework that's due in two days that i've only gotten like halfway through you know like it's i, I need to like uh force myself to do it but i will say that during times of of when we're running experiments my work-life balance is all out of whack because you're spending 11 hours in the lab and then, you know, if it's your experiment, you're showing up every day during the day, every day, seven days a week from like, you know, eight in the, eight in the morning till, you know, six or 7 p.m. Uh, so that's when it's really hard because then you just go home and like eat and sleep. But when you're not running an experiment, it's actually pretty, pretty easy to because it's more just now I can focus on my individual project without having the added, you know, uh, workload from making sure an experiment is running smoothly. And as miserable as you are at the end of running an experiment, that's when you learn the most because <laughs> you get to spend the day with all of the staff members who just know how all this stuff works. And maybe you, have a hiccup with a, a, a component that you've never seen before and then the staff member will just kind of look at it and then know immediately how to fix it and you're like oh what'd you do there and then you can just ask them a bunch of questions so that that does help but it is hard to it, it is really hard when we're running an experiment to find like a decent work-life balance i will admit to that i have, i'm not a pro at that yet yeah i totally feel that i mean i just the reason i ask is because i mean we took kill cup together right uh part of that class was these homework assignments that take you forever 
right? It's like a weekly thing. And of the week you're spending, I don't know, like how, how many hours a week you would say? What, in Kill Cups? Yeah. No, shoot. Yeah, like like tw- <laughs> at least 12, man. I was really slow at, the, <laughs> at those homeworks. Right, and that's just for one class. And that's like an undergrad class. So I want to know what it was like for you you're going into PhD, you're taking ENM, and you mentioned Jackson, right? It's like oh, yeah. some hardcore classes that everybody who's a PhD takes. So like, how do you, how do you manage with that? Well, as, as like, I guess as, as depressing as it sounds, you kind of, if, if you are, if you have a, a large enough workload, you, you eventually just become numb to it. You're like, Oh, yep. Time to sit down and spend like 10, 11 hours on three problems and then turn in an incomplete homework because I don't know how to do this last one. But it's also, uh, you kind of, as kind of like anything, like the more you you do it, the better you get at it. So um, when it comes to say E&M homework, he'll at least talk about something you need to do about it in lecture. So then I can just go to this lecture set of lecture notes, oh, I can start this problem like this, get so far, and if it's a Jackson problem, what's, you know, uh, what's advantageous about using Jackson is that there are so many solutions out there that I, I don't copy the solutions. I'll, I'll take the, you know, I'll take the seven or eight out of 10 on this particular problem because I just want to make sure I'm not going to, follow two pages of algebra and find out that I had the setup wrong. So I'll look at the solution to make sure like I set it up correctly. And then the main thing about that class is just the mathematical chops you have to develop by sheer necessity. So, uh, but yeah, you, you kind of just get used to it. I, I've heard from friends that the second semester, it lightens up a little bit but again, you're just so used to getting, you know, hit in the face with four really hard problems that you're eventually like, ah, that doesn't hurt as bad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, I feel that. Yeah. I, mean, I guess I can't feel that, but I can I can get what you're saying. Yeah. And and again, that kind of sounds depressing. I don't mean it to sound like that. I'm saying like if you just if you're always drowning in work, eventually you're gonna eventually you're gonna learn how to at least, you know doggy paddle and get your way get, get your way through it you know right right so uh that's that's kind of the the method i've been using just don't let up <laughs> get get used to it so so here's another one uh where, where do you or have you started to think about what you want to do on the other side right you said yeah this uh, navy guy that sounded kind of cool like yeah what's that what's that been like so it, a lot of it, so it, my, my gut response is I will not be doing, uh, I will not be doing like nuclear, nu- nuclear astrophysics stuff when I'm done with this PhD. Like that, that part didn't really interest me when I talked to this guy. In fact, like I wanted to stay a far, as far away from astrophysics and astronomy as I could. But here I am in a group that what we do is like nuclear astrophysics and stuff. But uh, I would say that going into this group, I wanted to do medical physics, uh, be a, med- a clinical medical physicist at a hospital. 
Uh, and so the skills obviously are pretty transfer transferable because, you know, nuclear radiation in materials is something that I learn. It's just now that material is like the human body. And so there's a little bit more training that goes into that, but the, the whole knowledge about detectors, uh, accelerators, and um, even just like image reconstruction from um, are, are all skills that are learned in, in particle and nuclear physics physics. And so they, they like those, those people with that kind of training. So where does that interest in the, I mean, you actually mentioned this before and I didn't ask because I didn't want to like divert too hard, but where does sure. that in, like biophysics and like the biology, like where's that coming from? That's something I've just always been interested in. I think we all, I actually, I shouldn't say all, but in my experience, a lot of people kind of get interested in medicine and stuff in high school when they take biology or something. So I always thought I was going to do, I was pre-med as well for the first year, Oh wow. but, I quick, but, but then I quickly realized that, um, well, first off, I hate chemistry, so that's not going to vibe because it's like essential, but, but second, it's like to actually, you don't have to be an MD to make some kind of impact in the medical field, or even you could still deal with patients and not be a doctor. Uh, and so I kind of, the first I don't know, iteration of what I want to do was, yeah, biomedical sciences, biomedical engineering type thing, which is why I did that. And I did that for my research in undergrad. And um, I, I had that focus as a ME student, but then some more stuff that interested me was like these alternate forms of, of uh, treatment especially after I took like a nuclear physics class and that it was actually, you know, that the real experts of, you know, the, the equipment for MRI machines, X-ray machines and all that were physicists or nuclear physicists, particle physicists. And I was like, oh, okay. So you're telling me I can do this thing that I love physics and then still somehow make it back to the medical realm in like this other really cool aspect of like, you know, alternative, uh, uh, what's the word, treatment. And I was like, oh, it's a weird path, but it, a long path too. But I, I found my way, the, so, like the something that I think I'd be really genuinely interested in the rest of my life. It was like a culmination of a bunch of different things. And I'm like, ah, there's a word for it. There's, there's a job for that, medical physicist. That's perfect. I know. It's, it took, like I said, it did take me to like my last year of undergrad to realize, be like, oh, okay, I can do that. Let's do that. I'll do that. If I can, I think I'm on a decent path to do path to do it. Yeah. I mean, going to like, presumably one of the best universities for nuclear physics, right. To go build that equipment seems, seems like, it seems like a good, good position to be in. <laughs> yeah, son. It's cool. Oops. Right. So is, I mean, I guess I don't know too much about that field, but have there been any major sort of like updates with uh, medical instrumentation? Like, right. I feel like MRIs are probably pretty old. Like those oldest kinds of like visual, like visual aiding systems. Yeah. Uh, you'd think, right. But uh, <clears throat> then you kind of look at the new age or like the new ones that are 
being developed in industry right now. Uh, and they're able to, the, the big thing I would, I would say right now is like a lot of image reconstruction, a lot of the, the programming to take the information and actually reconstruct like the, the, the specifically the irregularities in, in the human body, like the tumors or something like that. Cause a lot of the time, um, I learned this in undergrad. I'm not really sure if it's so, so true right now, but like uh, surgeons who were cutting out, say like cancerous tumors, these MRIs would only really show them maybe like 10% of what they needed to see. It wasn't until actually, you know, the invasive part where they open up the, the person's body that they see everything that they need to get out. So we're in this like really technologically advanced time, but still like the methods to, to, you know, be able to see into the, someone's body uh, who needs some kind of treatment is still pretty, um, there's, there's a lot to be developed there or, or streamlined, I'd, I'd say. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and, and to avoid cutting, pe cutting people open and then finding a surprise, that's, we'd like to, you know, avoid that. I'm sure surgeons would like to avoid that. Yeah. So, you know, like every other field right now, there's a boom in like machine learning algorithms for reconstructing like these, the, the, like the data that you get from the MRI machine um, to try to see what you need. You just want to avoid being surprised when you, when you go in for surgery, I guess I'll just limit it to that you know yeah, i mean that's a, that's a good place to be in is not to be surprised one of the ones that i think is super cool is a pet i think it's positron emission tom tomography yeah. yeah 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 so isn't that isn't that like they literally just inject like this glucose that's somehow i don't know is it radioactive i don't know what the deal is or it's like it's like as it gets you kind of like yeah geez you're injected with glucose water. This glucose is marked somehow. And as the brain consumes it, it, it like emits something. And maybe that's a positron, <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> yeah. No. So a positron is just like the, it's the uh, opposite charge version of an electron. So yeah, you're, um, I'm trying to think of what the chemical is, but basically the chemical will go on, specific parts of your brain. Yeah. And then, um, if the it's, it, it has a certain, uh, it has like certain reagents that tumor, like cancerous tissue will, uh, it'll collect there and then, uh, kind of fluoresce as you like, uh, bombard it with positrons. Uh, so also fun fact, like uh, all those machines, you know, like where you like an X-ray or like a, there's like an E-beam uh, or a positron beam. Those are small scale linear accelerators. And that, was, that was really fun. That was really fun and cool to learn. But yeah, you blast with a beam of positrons and then you get some cool fluorescent colors and you're able to see uh, different types of tissue because, you know, you, you always have some standard that you have like, like uh, the, there's a 
if you inject this chemical, the brain should look like this. And if it doesn't look like this, you can, <laughs> you can see it. Yeah. That's super rad. I actually didn't know that there were mini accelerators. Yeah. Uh, so you, you mentioned that a lot of the effort or there is a lot of effort in sort of this imagery construction. Is that something that you're currently involved in as well or something that you'd eventually get involved with? Maybe. I, I, I would still, I would say my programming chops are still pretty, I don't know. I, I can get some job done. I, I'm not proficient. I don't think I would be proficient enough to, to uh, actually contribute in that realm. And so that requires its own type of training too. I, I, I would say that right, right now, and probably by the end of the time I get my PhD, I wouldn't really be ready to jump into a medical physicist job. I would have to do a year or two training specifically for, for uh, you know, they have their own, I mean, they, it's, it's a growing, they have their own uh, PhD programs in medical physics. So like, I'd have to take some of those, I'd probably have to take some of those classes or, or something. There's probably trainings for, I haven't looked into this, but I'm sure there's trainings for like, converting like particle and nuclear physicists to medical physicists that that's that that i i do know of is a thing in in some i'm pretty sure like cleveland clinic has some kind of program like that if we're putting it in perspective here because we both know cities in ohio yeah and and that's close that's closer to home right i think you're from your, your family's in columbus yep okay c bus yeah i i see myself like maybe some postdoc position and where I can get some training in that and then find where I would actually fit in um, into, into like what, where exactly, like what exactly I can, I have the most knowledge about and I could uh, help in, in whatever area of, of medical physics. And I'm still pretty um, ignorant to a lot of that. I will admit, I will admit. Yeah, it's totally fair. I mean, that's, that's pretty far ahead, right? You got time. Yeah, I guess uh, one like un, sort of like the this part of the conversation is, do you find yourself in in uh, sort of a mentorship role? Right, I remember there's some student grad students when I was in school that were super useful. Right? Yeah, so, you've been in that situation. Yeah, actually, uh, I <laughs> what myself and another grad student friend of mine, we were chosen because we worked well with like younger people we both have undergrads assigned to us and so we're helping them with little aspects of a project that could be used on um i think i think not my project specifically but could be used to help with calibration of like this other detector thing so i've i've had yeah i've had some uh had to kind of learn on the fly how to how to mentor an undergrad who knows nothing of nuclear physics they haven't even taken quantum mechanics or anything so uh that's also that's been fun i've also had opportunities here to <clears throat> get involved in like the physics open house now we've only had one we would have had a second one if the pandemic didn't hit but uh it's just like a community day that we can um open up like all of our labs to to residents of Tallahassee and we give them tours of the facility and stuff. 
And so from a couple of those, I've had some high school students reach out to learn more about the lab, learn more about some physics, uh, a lot of engineering students because they saw big fancy contraptions uh, that they want to learn more about. So I've been able to like a little bit of a mentorship role there. Um, but the, I would say the most fulfilling one I have is I mentioned over and over again, I'll say it again. I'm in this, I was a part of this bridge program. Uh, and so I, I've been able to mentor incoming cohorts to, to now men, in, incoming cohorts of new bridge students. And I find that one particularly rewarding because I get to uh, help them not only with like classes, uh, administrative stuff, but also like, hey, can you, you know, where should I live? <laughs> what apartments are like not gross? Or, hey, man, I'm struggling with this. Do you, can we talk? And you know, <clears throat> just be there for them if they if they need it. I like I like that. I like the I like the bridge mentorship the, the best. How much of that is? Uh... You also talking about your research and getting them acquainted with other labs? A lot, yeah. a lot, because I, I would say that's, that was like for the first, I don't know, a couple months, that's maybe like 85% of our interaction to talk about possible things for research, because as I mentioned, this, their timeline is like two years. A lot of the time, like they, they're, it's not unusual that after two years they're like, you know what, I'm not into this. I'm I'm gonna bounce. So we have to help them get into research as quickly as possible because they need to finish, you know, a two-year project and and then be ready to defend and leave or defend and stay, I guess. Or like the the two from what I've seen, the two different um, things you could do. Yeah. I guess as, it's kind of interesting, like as the liaison, right, for specifically for your lab, like how, how do you convince someone to be like, okay, our stuff is really cool. You should, you should like come check this out. Like th I think there's a, there's a bit of a bottlenecking of information happening where you like, I mean, just like in this conversation, you could go in depth in so many different areas, but you kind of have to get the main point across and convince somebody who doesn't necessarily have the background. Right. So I, I think the... That's a good question. Um, I, th I think my main strategy is if, if all else fails, at least be super duper enthusiastic. I mean, that's kind of my personality anyway, but if you're really excited about something you're talking about, I'm surprised every time I do talk about something with this, with, with like this, that they themselves get pumped about it as well. And then that gets them a little bit more engaged. So that's my number one strategy. And like, secondly, I think for me personally, it's asking more questions at the beginning so that I can try to tailor what I'm talking about to stuff that they understand or stuff that they know. For So uh, the example I actually used in our conversation was uh, we have this big accelerator thing and we can put 8 million volts on it. And we have... Uh, and they go, wow, that's a lot. And I'm like, do you know how much? Like for your car to start, it's 12 volts. 12 volts will start your car. And they go, wow, really? So I go, what's easier to have? This one big tank or uh, let's see, 8 million divided by 10, 10 to the fifth. 
yeah, like that many, that many batteries, which would just fill this whole building. So it's, it's, you know, kind of put it in perspective that is a little bit more palatable. And then it's even, and if they're older, like I can start to ask them what's something they're interested in and maybe like show them, like I, I always teach pre-med. So I'm always like having to relate some portion, like some part of physics back to, I don't know, something that they're more familiar with, biology or chemistry. Um, that has actually kept me a little bit sharp as well. But yeah, I think those are the two main ones I usually implement. Ask a lot, ask a lot of stuff so I can break it down on a case by case basis and just be excited, bro. It's yeah. something, it's something that like, you know, if, if some, some, I would, I'll speak for, for physics. A lot of physicists will have incredible research, but they can just deliver it in the most boring way. And then that you're not engaged whatsoever. Where if you had some kind of enthusiasm about it, maybe some pictures on your slides, dude, so many more people learn so much more. And then, you know, they're, they're more excited to think about what it is that you're talking about. I mean, so it seems to me like those physicists that you're talking about are excited about what they're doing, but that's just how they present it. Like, yeah. what do you think it is about that? Like, why, 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 how, is that, how does that mismatch even exist? Like, how can you be like super deep into this and then explain it to somebody and then like just bore them? That's a, that's, oh man, I don't know. <laughs> that's like, it's, it's like an art form to be able to be able to like uh, communicate really high level stuff to people, but also do it really excitingly. So I, I acknowledge the challenge of it, but I don't know. I think it, it comes down to like personality of the person as well. You know, uh, if they're just really like a low energy person and, and like Dirac, yeah, dude, Dirac probably, Dirac probably bored the hell out of a lot of people <laughs> when he talked about quantum physics, but you'll find, uh, other quantum physics, but he found other quantum physicists that were like, wow, that's so cool. And then they came and asked him a bunch of questions. I'm sure there was some enthusiasm there, but yeah, I don't know, man. That's a good question. Uh, maybe it's also how, you know, how it was that this stuff was presented to him or her or these, these people who they grew up and they learned in grad school, just like the, someone stands in the front of the room, chalkboard method and present just the physics, you know, they learned that maybe just the, the information alone should be enough to entice you. I mean, I've, I, I, I can only speculate. I don't know. Yeah. Well, so as someone who's been in the situation, I'm sure you've had great classes. I'm sure if you had like really like bland dry classes. Sure. Like how much did that play into your presentation when you taught those lectures? Right. Like how much of that were you thinking about? Like I need to get these kids super hyped. Oh, oh yeah. It, it was, that was the number one thing. Like I actually took time out of like doing research and homework to go through those slides uh, to become more fam like familiar my familiarize myself with the content on slide one versus slide 12 so that like I could see what was coming and like present it in a more like fluid and uh, I don't want to say entertaining but like have some amount of enthusiasm behind it and it's something that it's easy to do that when you're better prepared because you know you 
I'm sure you've had <laughs> classes too, where you show up and the dude like starts reading the, the slides themselves, like for the first time that day, probably like right there in front yeah. of you guys, they're reading the slides. Oh yeah. I forgot on this, on this other slide. Just be, <laughs> dude, I, I spent a lot of time making sure that I, you know, refreshed on the, inf the, the information itself, but also my delivery, you know, of the, right. of the information because, you know, honestly it was a little bit a little bit nervous to do this podcast and i think i fell victim to it if i don't have structure i'll just gab and gab and gab and so that's not conducive for learning all the time so being able to deliver it with inflections here and more of a <laughs> like a, a a delivery that's like this is your final result down here you know it's it makes it a little bit more uh easier to pay attention to if you can follow the logic. So I did spend a lot of time. That was very, very much in my head when I went to like give lectures <laughs> at, at a university. So. <laughs> hey man. Yeah. It's like, it could be this person's first exposure to, to this topic, right? You exactly you power to get them either really pissed off that they're there and paying for school or, or really hyped. Right. It's yeah, like, exactly not those extremes, but still. Yeah. Also there's, I've, I've learned from teaching here that there's a little bit of a perception about the subject in general. It is hard, but people are like, it's hard. And like, no one really, the pro professors are only sometimes really like, uh, I don't know, nice. Like they, they, they'll actually care about teaching. It's very rare. So being able to kind of like, I don't know, flip a lot of the preconceived notions is fun as well. Because... You know, this is really interesting because uh, I had an idea way back when that was something like this. It's, it's basically YouTube, but it's not for random videos. Basically for each uh, professor in the department and each person who's going to be teaching, I go in and I ask them to explain a question. It doesn't have to be related to what they're teaching, but I just want to be able to see what this person speaks like and how they articulate their their explanation yeah their thought process too yeah that's cool but don't you think that'd be kind of useful because then you kind of know what you're getting into because i could read a name and either i don't know or my homies are like yo don't take this dude's class <laughs> right right huh i think there is a little bit of an effort by some professors they'll have like clicker questions uh i don't like uh, these gigantic lectures, which are like 200 some kids, they'll have little polls that they have and they answer with like these little devices. And I've seen professors use them for non-physics questions, especially in the first couple lectures. And I will say that it does end up with some more engaged students. I, I've, I've been able to see that. Problem is, they don't, they don't consistently ask random questions like that. They just, it's just for the first couple. And so then everyone goes, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll just answer the, like this relevant stuff about the material now. Yeah. I guess it's also kind of a give and take, right? Because I've been in classes where I was afraid to ask a question because I don't want to sound like an idiot. Oh yeah. But the question probably could have helped everybody. Oh yeah. Right. Oh. So I wonder how those walls kind of, become i guess smaller or those walls are completely torn down you, you right. i guess someone who's been in both positions now how would you sort of go about that so 
Yeah, I've I've done my I, I mean that's also something I keep in mind when I teach is like there's gonna be points where I'm if I'm lecturing, say, which it doesn't happen very often, uh, but say I'm I'm in a position where I have to like teach them, I ha I I make it a point to you know, every couple lines turn around, make sure people are engaged and ask, does any of this make sense? And then something that I've added to the end of that, that has proven to, yeah, kind of make people admit like, no, that doesn't make sense is saying something to the effect of guys, this is the first time you're seeing this. If any of this doesn't make sense, please tell me because it, if you don't understand this, everything's going to build off of it. And again, you can't expect to just immediately get something some some like phrase like that to make them feel comfortable and so then yeah then i'll get like one or two hands like yeah i don't understand that part and i go good and then i we can go back over it so I, for me i've i've made it very important to i don't know create these really I don't want to say, I don't like the phrase safe space anymore, but like make intellectually safe space, make everyone feel as comfortable as possible with each other. Don't be scared to be wrong in front of each other. Yeah. You know, the, the more, the, the more I've found, the more that people feel comfortable with the other students, the more brave they get when they're like, well, is, does that mean this is the case? And then they, they can be wrong. Uh, but you know, I've only been teaching for a couple semesters now, so I'm, I'm, that's, that's the best I have so far. Yeah. I think there, I mean, there's like a lot of very good stuff to what you just said. So first off, like the concept of being wrong is so terrifying, at least yeah. in the beginning, right? Uh, yeah. tie, it, tie it into some other things that you were talking about when you're purchasing that new piece of equipment to make this piece of like electronics, you don't know. <laughs> Yeah, and there's no there's no correct way of figuring it out so you just kind of got to do it so they're, yeah. they're comfortable being comfortable with being wrong is a vital vital skill yeah i mean we there are like physicists made a career out of it they were just wrong so many times that once in a while they're right <laughs> yeah. and then they're like they just no oh, we'll use that to proceed you know yeah but i mean like i i, I want to even go to one other point you were saying in your jackson homework which for those who don't those of of us who can't appreciate what Jackson means. It's, I mean, what, it's like one of the hardest uh, graduate classes you take in electricity and magnetism, right? It is the, yeah, it is the, for since the 1960s, the quintessential graduate level text for electricity, the electricity and magnetism sequence, which is a, a year long and it is full of problems that make you really flex your math methods muscles. And if you, if you don't have those muscles, you're forced to work them out. <laughs> you're, you're, you have to find a way to get those muscles. Uh, and so it becomes, it quickly becomes, or it's quickly snowballs into being some of the hardest physics problems you've ever done, mostly because it features some very ab like abstract math that we can apply to these certain things. So yeah, when we say Jackson, we're talking about these very miserable problems that it's just a slog to get through. But yeah, what were you saying about the- But yeah, so like you were saying how you would, uh, you'd kind of take the L sometimes, like you'd like leave a problem unfinished, even though the- Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, dude. 
there's something to that. There's something to that, that it's so easy in a lot of cases, just to even go find the right answer that I don't, I don't want to accept that I didn't get it, but like accepting that you didn't get it or didn't have time to get it. Right. Two different things. You're giving, you're kind of doing yourself a a favor. I think. Yeah. And, and I guess that, yeah, it'll come down. If I guess it fundamentally it is, I'm I'm too, I have too much like self-respect. I respect physics too much just to cop out and look at the answer. If I made it through a majority of the problem and I understand what they're trying to ask, it's just me versus two more pages of algebra. I'll be like, yeah, I'll just, I know how to do this, but here's my, here's my, here's my homework. I don't want to. And actually um, this kind of, this is actually a perfect example. It harps back on way back when you asked me about this work-life balance it's something that I had to figure out that, you know, there's no blue ribbons given to people who got perfect scores on their problem sets. Like being able to identify those times to to just be like, this is not worth my time. I'd rather do research or I'd rather uh, study for this exam or I'd rather go for a walk. I'd rather go for a walk than do this three pages of algebra. I'll turn it in. That's, that's, That's a skill that I've developed after two years of grad school. And I'm like, it feels great sometimes to just be like, ah, it's no longer on my plate. I don't have to think about it. You know, it's. Yeah, I, I totally, I totally respect that. And I, I don't want to undermine the difficulty of that. Right. Oh, for sure. Like you did, you know, the, what is it? The grade system? Like I need an A or like, I need a B like, nah, <laughs> in grad, <laughs> in grad school, you're here to uh, learn I don't know. You're, you're learning how to do research. You're learning how to be a scientist. So is, you know, finding this particular greens function in cylindrical coordinates going to get me closer to uh, building my detector that has nothing to do with that? Nah, (laughs) it's not. So it's interesting because the, the same principle applies to physics as an, as an experimentalist or even as a theorist, right? You got to know when to stop trying this thing that you've been like beating <laughs> you guys know when to stop beating the dead horse whatever the expression is yeah exactly or yeah, yeah exactly no one to cut your losses yeah yeah that's that's a very powerful thing i haven't had to do that too much in research thing thankfully but yeah man i if it if it means being overall happier or overall using my time better just throw it away <laughs> just get out of right here. on right on i man i've been in the mindset of someone who's consumed by grades before i mean that died really quick like yeah oh dude <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing how quickly that dies <laughs> oh man well what so i'll say this there's a caveat like if you're instead doing something else productive absolutely like i'll I'll, I'll be behind you hundred percent, but if you're just not doing it just to not do it, like, oh, come on, bro. Like if yeah. you have time to do it, you should probably do it. Yes. I think I went down the, the former. I was like, <laughs> nice. Yeah, no, no, but you're super salient. Like that's the move. If you have something better that you could be doing. And I guess that's up for you to decide. You should probably be doing that. Like yeah. if it's, it's between me finishing this problem set or going home early and Thanksgiving to see my family, I'm probably going to go see my family. That's I, I made that exact. I made that to a T exact call like three weeks ago. Yeah. I, 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 
as someone in town and I'm like, I could sit here for the rest of the evening or like doing this or go hang out with him. I'm gonna I'm choose the, the latter. But I'm sorry, I took you down a tangent of an earlier question. What was the point you were making about the Jackson thing? Like, oh, if- I think we got to it, but more or less, it was just saying how you 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 didn't you didn't finish, right? Yeah, it was the, the decision to not finish, even though you could have easily gone and looked up the question. Sorry, look uh, up okay. the answer. But the, yeah. the the point you made was you have too much self-respect and too much respect for physics, which, in that order, I think that's all you can strive for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, man. This has been this has been a nice conversation. I, I haven't I haven't talked deeply about your work to with you ever. I don't think. Yeah, I've, I've I, you're one of the first actually. I've kind of gone into a little bit with only. I mean, maybe a a pan, but like that might be it. So yeah, hopefully they'll, is, they'll go through and be like understanding more than I did, but. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess. Hopefully, I'll I'll learn some more uh, before like by the next time uh, you have me on your podcast. Yeah, dude, dude. Thanks. Seriously, thanks for doing this. I I think. Um, do you find it? Like, I guess uh, some of the questions I asked, I really will reconsider asking that type of question because I do understand that they're like stupidly loaded. Like, I asked you kind of a what is the what is the meaning of life kind of question. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Like, okay, well, let's see. I'm going to answer 20, I'm going to try to answer 25% of what, of, of the entire, like what I could, I don't know, groan on about. Yeah. yeah. But I no, I, I, th- but I, the thing is though, I think it was, I think it was okay that that happened because it got me to like try to formulate the challenge to formulate how I want to like actually, where do I want to start? Where do I want to end? And so yeah, I think I think it was good that I, you challenged me like that, because I don't know. I'm not sure if I did it very well, but. Um, hey, I mean, I have a picture of what you're doing. All right, cool. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Cha-ching. Yeah, I think uh, it's very easy to get lost in the details. Like we could have in any one of those moments gone down some like path of, OK, you have this uh, like electron avalanche. What, why are you using two parallel plates? Like what, what is the practical reason to do that? I just remember in ENM there was a problem where you'd have two pair two parallel plates and one is positively charged and one is negatively charged. Exactly. Well, and to answer that, it's all you need. Yeah. You only need two. But yeah, I understand. Yeah, any of that stuff I could we could go down an entire podcast about, which is, you know, I think it's it's a pretty good illustration of everything that I'm having to like learn <laughs> and and like in the small window that i need to learn it and then i kind of harps back on like you know i think i'll be i think i'll be fine in the job market by the time i'm done here oh certainly i feel like th- there's like a meta thing to physics where you basically know how to problem solve in any situation right and that's i mean again any that's like any situation sure <laughs> so, Presumably you could go do finance. I know um, one of my really good buddies who was in the high energy physics lab at Ohio State, he finished his PhD and went to finance. He was like, I'm out. Yeah, dude. Yeah, <laughs> man. Some, some, some big dollars doing finance. That shit, man, get that bread. Cause yeah, no, I understand. I mean, that's, and who knows, man, that might be what I end up doing. Like, I'll 
maybe do something completely different. I might find like a, an opportunity and then I just follow that for as long as it's fruitful. Yeah. I don't know. I'm taking it day by day. I, I mean, I really get that. I think uh, I used to ask people like, Oh, what do you want to do? But I think the better question is like, how do you, how do you want to live? Right. How do you want to sort of well, in a process oriented way? Like that's, 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 that's a good point. Yeah. How do you, like, what kind of lifestyle do you see yourself having in 10 years? Yeah. So, I mean, like, I personally don't want to have a nine to five job ever. I've, I've said, fuck it. I'm out. I'm <laughs> out. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, I have a kind of a version of this already, which is just like, I can do tech. I can do tech remotely and I can make my meetings and do work whenever I want to. Stuff, so, man. That's like super solid. But again, the, the other point there is, is like, work is not my life. Work is five percent of my life maybe yeah and i feel like if it ever tips the other way it's because i love what i'm doing and i'm passionate about it so absolutely until i have those two things i'm not going to let it tip past five percent that's i mean the fact that you can identify that is very mature and i like i like that how you articulated it i'm not sure i could do it any better <laughs> i'm gonna write that down actually <laughs> Yeah, this, these are problems that I've been thinking about very, very, very critically, especially like the stop asking people what they want to do. It's such a bad question because right? it changes every day. For some people, sure. But for yeah. other people, it, it, it'll, it's, you know, I would say a lot of, if you ask a lot of physicists, they'll, they have a pretty decent picture of what they want to do. Yeah. Hey man, I want to, I want to go, uh, what is it called? Figure out the I don't even remember the words anymore. There's some like bullshit in string theory. What are, the starting point for all of the, the problems in string theory is to create some kind of Hamiltonian, right? Oh, no, sorry. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm using words I don't even fucking understand. It's like a Lagrangian or Hamiltonian. It's one of those. For a string theory, you're, I'm, that's out of my realm. I have no idea, dude. But yeah, if, but the standard model is boiled down to one big fancy Lagrangian. So I think, I think you're, you're in like some somewhat correct yeah, I have a, a, a negative one order idea of what's happening. <laughs> yeah, you and me both. When I when I do end up taking QFT, maybe I can answer that a little bit better. Because that's that's next fall I'll be taking QFT. Dude, that's a wild. You ever like kind of think about what you're learning and then put yourself back into you undergrad and just think like, bro, what? <laughs> yeah man all the time i remember like like i said i i i'm converted physicist so like i had an entire this all going back to this plan of what i want to do i had an entire future basically what i thought what i was going to do like mapped out yeah graduate get a job be be have free time again yay but then man you just you take you meet the right people you ask the right questions and then you just find yourself in a completely different uh, path than you thought. And the in the cool part, at least for me, I, I guess maybe this isn't cool for everybody, but for me, when I, I'm just the kind of personality that when I found a new path, there's no looking back. I just like, just beelined it, just full force. Yeah. Not even taking the time to like, consider what it is that I wanted, what I thought I wanted, you know, like I, and it's only after I talk about, you know, say like a timeline of, of my career in, in college, I'm like, oh yeah, that's what I wanted to do. 
and it's like not even scary that like that's completely just thrown in the garbage it, yeah. i think that's really i think that's really exciting i think that's super awesome I, I aspire to that right there's some there's something to sunk cost that's terrifying yeah like okay i did this shit i could have kept going god damn oh dude no. <laughs> ignorance is bliss i'm like i i don't even like sometimes to a detriment i just don't even dwell i just like do it and like see what happens yeah <laughs> so it's it's yeah i i that's that's really cool to think about but going back to your thing yeah like i always whenever i call my parents especially like they'll always ask me like how's your research going and so then i'll start just hitting them with all the jargon and like all this stuff and they're like i don't understand a thing you just said and i go oh wow that that's that's that brings me right back down i i really love my parents for that that tether like i can't just you know I can't just like spout all this stuff out expecting people to understand. I need yeah. to like reformat it. And then that in and itself makes me reflect on like, holy crap, I learned all that in like the past couple of months. That's bananas. And then like yeah. I'll write I'll, I'll I'll write about it in my journal. Like, oh yeah, today today I realized I've learned this much stuff. It's pretty cool. Well, so I mean there's there's the bit to, to say there. I think the first thing is like, yes, once you're when you're in the thick of it. You're just not, you're not considering that you learned all that stuff because it's just common to you. But the, the other thing is that you're surrounded by people who understand it, which yeah. is not that big of a group of people. So that when you go back into the real world where your parents live, you're like, you, you're like saying things that are incomprehensible. Truly. And I, <laughs> I, I thank my parents every time I get off the phone, like, thank you. You, you remind, you've, you've kept me humble. <laughs> But it's super rad that you can, like, the the, the coolest part about growing up, I'll, I'll call this growing up, is like, it kind of uh, clears away the mysticism behind a lot of people and behind a lot of things, right? So in the same way that you said you came up with this new uh, a piece of electronics, like this electronic equipment, it kind of like clears the fuzz for me on how someone might come up with stuff at CERN, right? I like make, the, like, make that kind of conclusion. That's how it went. It wasn't some like, okay boom it's here it was a whole process in the same way that you you kind of think of like oh you know what when i saw my professor and he was a total g like kill cup okay maybe i can kind of understand how he got to the point where he was at he did it for like longer than i've been alive (laughs) so there's there's something to that there's a lot to that wow and it's yeah it's what i what i do like is that that feeling that, well that's wild that this guy's been doing this and he's come up with this you know it it does give you more perspective to you know have to do it yourself but then it still it does it still is the same as you know when i first met kill cup I, like when i talk to them yeah, i'm like this guy's uh, like starstruck almost like this guy's a badass and yeah. now i can i can i can instead of instead of five minutes before he completely loses me i can last 10 and then like 15 and 20 like oh man i'm having a real conversation with an expert in what it is that i want to do that's so cool right but but then if i look at you guys speaking i'm like whoa that's two experts talking to each other right yeah (laughs) i guess from that perspective like i like i really like to to put that into perspective for my friends who are doing like a phd like by definition you are going to study to be an expert right yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah. 
I'm having one of those realizations right now. Like, yeah, like by the end of this, you know, something that actually helps really well with that is uh, I've heard, I heard it from, I can't remember if it was my undergrad research advisor or my current one, but basically if any kind of scientific talks, you should just be, you can, you can basically throw all of your nervousness out the window because you are the expert. Like, you know, the most amount of the stuff, like even the, like the, physicists in the room don't know as much as you do about this particular thing yeah so like you don't need to like you know you don't need to worry they might ask you some questions about stuff they do understand they're trying to connect it to your stuff so be able to do that but when it comes to like just presenting your your you know your my, in my case my detector they're going to know principles of how this kind of detector works but like for mine specifically this little gizmo does this specific thing and it's like this and I can relate it like this. It's, it's really cool. Uh, it's, that's, that's a, that's a good point to a co- just a couple experts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the perspective is, we, I, and it's trippy to think about even like right now, which is why I'm kind of just all over the place, but, but like, yeah, it's, bro, it's, it's, weird. it's the, you're the expert in the, the existent world on the thing that you created, right? Nobody else who exists today. That's weird to think about. That's a lot of billions of people. That's a lot of people. But I think one really cool thing I, I remember hearing from another graduate student was at a certain point, toward maybe towards the middle to end of your PhD, not even your advisor is an expert on what you're working on because they don't have time to be. Oh yeah, no. <laughs> so like the, yeah. that's the, the presumably the closest person who is going to be an expert to it anyway. And now you're just like, you're out here and you're just like, okay, I'm going to, I'm just going to try to tell everybody what I did and hopefully they can understand it. <laughs> exactly. I, I've, I've only just begun to reach that point. And so I, I haven't really processed all the st- like the emotions that go along with being the expert in the room. Yeah. But uh, I, can, I can say it's a, it's, it is a pretty powerful feeling when you're like, oh man, like, well, how, how old I, are you? I'm 26. Bro, like you're 26 and you're already there. What do you do? What what happens when you're like 40, right? Like, right, right. Extrapolation. If you even do like a linear interpolation by age 40, you're going to be like incomprehensible to everybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, I don't, I'd like to avoid that, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> if I go full fledged, full force, then yeah, I will, I will not, I will not retain a lot of the attention but yeah that is trip that's that's pretty trippy to think about it's a good i mean that's that's actually a pretty good exercise that i like i should probably do more often yeah i think uh it's hard i personally find it hard to do with myself because i'm very critical of myself so i'm just like Mm -hmm. what 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 is this happening but like when i'm trying to explain what i'm doing to somebody else i'm like excited about it I'm like, yeah. hold up, wait a second. Maybe I do know some things. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I, I will like when when you when I don't know if you you'll ever have the opportunity to teach, but you get that on a regular basis. It's really it's really cool. And yeah. sometimes you even like learn some stuff that you never actually fully understood when you start explaining it. Which is yeah, I mean this cool. is this is something that Feynman said, right? That I mean, loosely his whole premise was if I can't explain it in super simple terms, then there's a deficiency in my understanding. That was his premise. I'm not saying it's correct or not, but 
there's something to that. There's something to be able to explain the gist of this really complicated thing I'm doing to like a, someone who's 18 years old. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, that's it's it's something that I do keep in mind as well. That I, I've heard that as well. Like the, and then you get kind of tossed around the Feynman technique and stuff, and you're just like, yeah, yeah. Which is why I, I like to practice to when I end up do lecturing, I'll, I'll I'll try to explain it one way, and then if it sounds all clunky and doesn't follow a good line of logic, then I'll have to think about how to I'll re-explain it. Think about how to streamline that, you know? Yeah. But to do it, that, but to you as it is for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, for sure. What was it? I, I know. I know he's a very polarizing guy now because he did some not good stuff. But yeah, uh, have you seen Mo Walter Lewin? The oh. he's a he was a physicist at MIT, who was oh, this he's the circle guy? The circle guy. Oh my god! And the dotted line guy. Like yeah, I yeah, yeah. I, I, Like I said, like I don't condone what he what he, like all other stuff he did, but I can say that he was one of the best like physics communicators I've ever come across like in my small existence uh and he would literally give he would show up the day before like on a sunday or something his lecture he would give the full lecture from start to finish three times before he went home he had to be completely satisfied with it he'd do all the demos all of the equations on the blackboard all the perfect circles and dotted lines he would do all of that at least three times to get it perfect before the day of like actually presenting it. Wow. And it's like, someday I'll have the time that I can like invest in teaching because I, I do enjoy teaching, but uh, to watch his investment and in making sure that he understood something that he's going to communicate to students that have possibly never seen this stuff before. Uh it, it, it's it's really admirable i'd say like that guy put a lot of time into his teaching and making sure he knew how to explain stuff right and i would i would probably say that's really rare right because super rare like, super i was actually thinking about this earlier today where people will want to go to your university because there's like some clout i think the thing that gives you a university clout is research and research comes before education and in, in that university so the people who are professors there are doing research first and teaching only after the fact. <laughs> so if you're trying to tell some professor to like take, you know, three extra hours trying to perfect a lecture, I don't know that those three hours are going to be used in the most effective way for that university. No, 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 they're not. Especially, well, I, I actually like uh, stereotypically also like in physics, you don't see that a lot. But what I do like to remind people is that the, you know, just like everything, it's it's starting to like finally come around, it's modernizing, you know, it's there's, there's more people that are willing to do that, and you know, young professors who, you know, have a lot more passion and enthusiasm. Yeah, it's really awesome to see. I also think physics uh, education as a PhD is really cool. Yeah, for like. Definitely. There's, there's no PER here, I guess not like not formally like a student, like a professor that does it for his research or her research. 
but there are a couple professors here that I've actually, you know, talked to and helped kind of restructure some labs who are, you know, trying to shift the curriculum a little bit into like this PER proven conducive, like learn physics manner. One of which, one of, one of the things is actually how I'm teaching right now. I just got done teaching what's called a studio class. So yeah, instead of, instead of uh, a professor in front of like a chalkboard or something lecturing, the students come in and sometimes there might be like a 10 minute lecture, but we introduce new topics every week and they just get a few, they get in groups and then we give them problems. And then this, this hands-on collaboration uh, with the new material and they have to like flush, thing, flush things out, uh, uh, try to be able to explain it to each other and stuff. It's proven that they learn more from doing that than just listening to a lecture. Um, and so there's like these like, yeah, these flipped classroom approaches kind of thing. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to see how long it takes the professors who are like spearheading that effort in our curriculum to maybe shift towards PER if they're ever going to do it. I think yeah. they're basically at that point. Um, well, if the online thing persists, then you kind of, I wonder if that makes it harder or easier, right? Because you could do like Zoom breakout rooms type of thing, right? Yeah, that's what we do. Like, how do you kind of make sure that the groups are doing and like kind of making the progress that you want them to? So I guess that is a pretty big flaw about the system. You don't know what kind of progress they're making for real until say like a quiz rolls around or to be fair i think that's the same problem with lecture like you don't even know until they submit the homework <laughs> uh fair point fair point but then yeah I, I don't, i'm not sure there's really there's, there's any kind of metric that we can look at i can say that it, i i was just bouncing around breakout rooms for an entire semester making sure that people didn't have questions or anything like that. Yeah. And I could, I could at least tell that um, there are some groups that would utilize this, this whole uh, setup, which is taking advantage of the group members that you have and others that wouldn't. And I could say that the groups that really engaged with the material with each other it was easy to see that they had a pretty good understanding of what's happening. Um, but relative to the groups that didn't, you know, really talk that much, um, when I would come in and ask them just like, okay, so what'd you get for this part A? And they'd say it. And then like, why did you get that? Then maybe one person could give them a response, but not everybody. It's, it's a, the in-person, version of this from what I've heard I've only taught the studio version remotely but it's way easier to be able to bounce around to groups um, when you you know when you're in person and can and can look at students and like uh, see blank stares at a piece of paper in front of them versus like students who are you know maybe looking stuff up in books and stuff. It's, it's, it's more obvious. Um, yeah. I think it would, in that way, it would be kind of harder. You know, uh, I guess 
I've had an interesting experience recently with a class. It was uh, completely asynchronous and there were no lectures. What does so, asynchronous mean? So it means asynchronous. Like, there, are no, there, so there are no lectures and you don't have to meet at any point. You just submit the homeworks when they're due. And there are no, like there, the notes are the book. <laughs> so that, that was a trip. Nice, nice, <laughs> dude. I'm sure you got a lot out of that class, did you? So weirdly, yes, but it took a lot of discipline right a lot of extra discipline interesting i mean i guess yeah it's it's the same approach uh completely new information you just kind of work through it yourself right and now it was like i go to the problem first and go figure out where in the book i could figure out the answer to this problem and then i just kept doing that nice using your resources respect i like yeah, it right. <laughs> hit that, hit that wiki hey shout out wikipedia <laughs> That donate to wikipedia if you can yeah. i haven't i haven't yet but you know I should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they've been prompted prompting me a lot <laughs> they had some actually pretty like funny convincing things like if you've learned 10 things or something from wikipedia then that's worth like two dollars or something I'm it's like, probably worth way more than two dollars like you've taught me like 200 things but still i'm too broke for that <laughs> all right man dude it's been a pleasure yeah likewise man thanks for thanks for having me yeah for sure we'll do it again we'll do it again when you're uh even further the expert <laughs>